I'm from a city. I'm from the capital city. I still say that Harare is my favorite city in the whole world. The urban areas are highly influenced by the international culture because of satellite TV, because of radio, because of the internet. People are very westernized, so to say, but they still maintain their culture. People's lives are dynamic and these cities are dynamic and the continent is dynamic. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition. The podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. Where are you from? This question comes with lots of baggage. Baggage of cultural expectations and associations that can put people into boxes. And these boxes don't always do justice to a given community or place. Implicit in the question is a fixed image that may not be responsive to the energy or momentum of change in a given place. This seemingly innocuous but rather contested question appears early on in Taya Selassie's 2005 essay, Bye Bye Babar, in which Taya presents a hybrid and cosmopolitan vision of African youth that challenges the premise of the question, where are you from? Increasingly, for people living throughout Africa, one way to answer the question, where are you from, would be to say, in a city. In 1960, roughly 85% of people in sub-Saharan Africa lived in a rural community. In the last 40 plus years, the trend has shifted towards urban life. By 2020, only 58% of sub-Saharan Africans lived in rural communities. In Ghana, only 42% of the population is rural today. In South Africa, it's 33%. The trend towards urbanization is seen from country to country across Africa. Cities are growing throughout the continent. There are over 55 cities throughout Africa with populations exceeding 1 million people. Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Lagos in Nigeria both boast over 14 million inhabitants. There's over 10 million people living in Cairo and nearly 5 million in Nairobi, Accra, has well over 4 million people, and Harare in Zimbabwe exceeds a million and a half inhabitants. For comparison, New York City is home to nearly 9 million people, Los Angeles, roughly 4 million, and Boston is home to around 675,000 people. For some, this trend may be a surprise. For others, it's well-known and familiar. Africa has a long and illustrious history of cities, from Timbuktu as a center of learning, to Great Zimbabwe as a site for trade and commerce, to Zanzibar and Mombasa in East Africa, the list goes on. Cities themselves aren't new to Africa, but we can learn a lot about daily life and the lifestyles of young people today by focusing on urban spaces. 
Cities don't tell us everything we could know about the varieties of lived experiences throughout Africa, but a lot is revealed by asking questions different than simply, where are you from? What if we ask questions like, how does it feel to live in a city? How do young people interact with the physical space of a city? How do they navigate culture and identity in urban settings? Questions like this aren't particular to Africa and Africans. They're questions asked around the world. Yet they aren't always asked enough when thinking about daily life and young people on this dynamic continent. Answering these questions offers us insight into what it looks like for culture to be hybrid, for art and music, food and trends, to have multiple origins and countless expressions, as influences fuse and compete, contrast and coexist within urban life. By looking at cities, we give ourselves physical space to look at questions of race, class, and gender. Cities are home to social problems, but also social possibilities. Let's start this conversation by turning to three young people and learning from them what it means to live in Harare, Zimbabwe, and Nairobi, Kenya. I'm Lillian Rwanda, and I'm from Zimbabwe. I moved to Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, when I was 15. And uh, I lived there until I was 22. So my life has been urban since I moved from my village when I was 15. I would always hang out with friends, go out to parks. The park that we used to go to was a park called Greenwood Park. It was like a family park. There were like slides for kids. And then there was uh, lots of green areas like gardens with nice flowers and benches. So you would kind of like sit and maybe like picnic, just, you know, hang out. And even like when you have a boyfriend, those are the kind of places you would go to to hang out as well. Young people, like young people everywhere. We like international things, you know, people watch satellite TV. Having satellite TV is it's like something that everyone aspires to have. As soon as you can afford it, you get it. This is actually another big difference between rural Zimbabwe and urban Zimbabwe. Because of the Western influence in urban Zimbabwe, young people wear jeans and, and trousers and so on. At the time I moved from my village to the urban city, it was highly frowned upon in my village for any woman to wear uh, jeans, any form of trousers actually. Women wore dresses and skirts. And I still go back to the village. I know how people are back there, what are the customs and how to behave back there. And when I'm in Harare, I also know how to behave there. You can speak English all you want with your friends and your peers on the streets, but when you're home with your parents and your grandparents, you have to speak either your Shona or your Ndebele. Even though Harare is an urban city, I find that the values of the people are still very traditional. And now this is important because I came from the rural areas to live in the urban areas, but I'm not the only one. A lot of young people in urban areas in Zimbabwe and in Africa, even people who were born in the urban areas, who have lived in the urban areas their entire lives, have families in the rural areas. Harare is a new city. 
everyone who lives in the city has family in the rural areas. So people kind of like, they always go back and forth between the rural areas and the urban areas. There is so little differentiating us. So little makes a young person in Boston different from a young person in Harare. My name is Shamisongo Ngoni. I am from Zimbabwe, Harare, um, specifically where I'm from. And I was born and raised there for 19 years before moving to the United States. For so much of my uh, childhood, well, it felt very like suburb life, like a very uh, small community, local church, local grocery store, local shopping malls, that kind of life. As I got older, I finally was able to go into the city with my siblings and my friends. And I feel like I was sort of in awe of the actual city center. The city center was a connector of the rest of the city. So you're getting into the city, you're going somewhere else, or you're going to do a little bit of shopping. Things were always more affordable in the city center than where we grew up, for sure. So, you know, sometimes you're going in there to pick up a few things, go a little bit shopping, meet with friends who live in different parts of the city and sometimes different parts of the country. And just, you know, spend the day, the afternoon, getting to know each other or hanging out. The city feels like there's a lot of people here. That's how it feels like. It, just, it feels like that. It might not be the reality, but that's how it feels. And it feels like there are all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life who are coming here and they're seeking opportunity of some sort. And it feels just like that. When you live in Harare, the whole country feels as if it centers around Harare. There is a very strong like barbecue going to the lake culture. The whole point of this park is for this quick six meal barbecue style and people are in their cars basically kind of picnicking out of their cars and also there's music, loud music and entertainment and sometimes even performances. There's also like a show culture, like people go to watch performances, people go to, you know, watch local artists and local artists come up this way. There's so much more culture, it's richer than I got to experience and that I got to know. And you know, <laughs> it's so unfortunate. If you speak about the history of a place, Zimbabwe, so to speak, you have to kind of tie it into what it looks like today. My name is Irene Asua. I started living in the city when I first came to campus. It has been a bittersweet experience. This is the place where I found the ecological crisis more glaring. When I came in through campus, there were a number of green spaces like parks that we would access for free. Fast forward, uh, they became commodified and people now have to pay to access them. A number of them have been fenced off. And so young people do not therefore have space to do their games, to rehearse for 
whatever it is they want to rehearse from because this park gave birth to bands, they gave birth to plays, they gave birth to theatres, they gave birth to a lot of things and these spaces acted as spaces to create so many things. And so with time, the community spaces continue to reduce more and more. You're always in on survival mode, always on the lookout for police because you could be arrested, extorted. Our housing is not doing any better because the houses, again, are in a manner that that does not really support human dignity at all. So how we are trying to cope with this is to sort of rally ourselves as young people to, to reclaim green spaces, so to create parks, to make the walls of this concrete jungle look a little bit better through graffiti, with messaging that enlighten people, and to also like create spaces for kids who at the moment do not have spaces to play. Let's now turn to a scholarly voice to help us navigate the big questions around urban life and what we can learn about the ways identities are constructed, cultures negotiated, and lifestyles established in cities. My name is Inima Ejapan. I am currently on the faculty at the University of Cincinnati as an assistant professor in women's gender and sexuality studies. I lived in Accra until I was 15 years old. I grew up in a middle-class context, and I, I say that with kind of caveats because it's really quite difficult to measure class, at least when I was growing up in that post-colonial context where so much was changing, we were just coming out of structural adjustments and that sort of thing. With Enima, we're going to focus on one city in particular, Accra, Ghana. We could have traveled to Lagos, Johannesburg, Dakar, or Alexandria, for instance. There's no shortage of African cities teeming with stories to hear. Each city has its own richness and texture, worthy of deep consideration. No two cities throughout Africa are the same. So we'll venture to one place, knowing full well that there are numerous other urban spaces that each have their own cultural bounties and social realities to behold. So since we're focusing on Accra, let's turn to Anima and get a glimpse into some of what can be found in the city. Let's start with the sights, sounds, and smells of the city that Anima knows so well. Accra is a city of, I think, a million people. So it's a large city, but it's also a small city. It's sprawling. It's got a lot of different neighborhoods, and you can see the class distinctions in the, in the different neighborhoods, especially today. If you're walking down Oxford Street, for example, if you begin at Dunquest Circle, you'll see this giant apartment complex. It's beautiful, it's very fancy. And then you're walking down the street, you're seeing hawkers uh, selling maybe some fresh fruit and vegetables, maybe selling cell phone cases, sunglasses, that sort of thing. And you keep going. It's a very long street, Oxford Street. There are banks and restaurants and all kinds of fun places. There's an ice cream parlor that you might go to. It's loud. It is a two-way street. There are taxis pulling over to pick up people. There's trotters, which are these minibuses that run on particular routes and they stop to pick you up and they'll take you wherever you need to go and the price is different depending on where you're going. 
it's loud, it's hot. It's almost always hot in Accra. And it's just, it's a space that can be very overwhelming if you've never been in a big city before. It's a full body experience. I would talk about the smells. So like, you're walking down and there's a pizza place right next to a place that sells wache. And wache is just, um, it's rice and beans. It's this delicious food. You can buy it in restaurants, but you can also buy it on the street. So, you know, you might call it a street food that might be sold to you in banana leaves. Accra is also on the coast. And so actually, if you keep following Oxford Street and you might see the ocean because right around that part too are some of the forts, the old forts that the British and the Portuguese put up, those are still there. It's a mix of the colonial and the post-colonial of like these things that you might call traditional spaces and modern spaces. They all kind of come together in the city at the same time. They are next to each other. It's uneasy and it's comfortable. The city is full of contradictions. There's a KFC next to the Wache spots, next to the Kili Willy cellar, next to the Italian ice cream. That also kind of gives you a sense of what's going on there. There's a kind of interaction that necessarily happens. And at the same time, the Kili Willy cellar might not feel comfortable walking into Frankie's to buy ice cream because of how the space is set up. If you're a young person who grew up in a city, you'll find that Accra is pretty easy to navigate because you can take the bus to go just about anywhere you want to go. If you grew up in Jamaica Plain or Dorchester or, or something like that and take the tea, then you know what it's like to navigate a city like Accra. There's also just a lot to do. Like just about every night there's something to do because it is, it is really like a big city. It's quite a cosmopolitan space. So it just provides this kind of broad range of activities that can nourish a curious person. Cities lend themselves to thinking about cosmopolitanism. Yet what exactly do we mean when using that term? What does it mean to be cosmopolitan? And why does it matter that cosmopolitan is recognized when thinking about urban life in Accra specifically and throughout Africa more generally? When I talk about cosmopolitan, I'm really kind of talking about urban space where there's just a lot of diversity. So one of the things that I think about with cosmopolitan is that it's not just a space where there is one kind of person. So one of the things about walking down the street in Accra is you're going to hear a lot of different languages. You'll hear English. I say English as multiple languages because you'll hear English spoken with a broad range of accents. You'll hear various Ghanaian languages. But you'll also hear various African languages. You'll hear European languages that are not English. You'll hear Pidgin, which is a patois that is a mix of English and other indigenous languages. And that's part of what makes it a cosmopolitan space. And then there's the fashion, just like the aesthetics of the people walking down. You might see someone wearing a suit and you think, oh my gosh, it's so hot. But you see that when you're in any place where people work in Western industry. But then you'll see these kind of colorful fashions that are also very formal, or you'll see people on vacation because it's, you know, all of that is happening on the same street as the person who works at the bank and the person who's there going to the bank because they're on vacation and they're trying to take money out. And all of that, I think, lends to the cosmopolitan ethos of the space. It's one thing to illuminate cosmopolitanism in African urban life, yet entire projects discourses, and modes of expression are referred to using the term Afropolitan. So what exactly is Afropolitanism? 
Is there even a singular or simplistic definition that captures what is meant by people when living an Afropolitan life? I use that term as a kind of heuristic to talk about a number of different things that I think underlying this kind of cultural politics, this cultural project, is a jockeying for position on the global landscape. So at the base, I would say that Afropolitan projects are a racial project that are trying to recover Africa's image in the world and kind of doing the work of ushering in a present, but also a future in which Africa is rightfully, I think, placed on the global landscape as just like anywhere else in the world, right? Not as this like special place with very poor people and people starving and hungry and all of these things that we're so comfortable thinking about Africa, but really kind of pushing back against that to say, look, we're just like everyone else. And that's part of what Afropolitan projects are trying to show. A city is more than population size and density. Appreciating a city requires more than knowing about its layout and location. To walk the streets and be immersed in a city is to resonate on a certain frequency. It's to experience a vibe. In researching and writing about Afropolitan projects and describing Accra, Anima uses the term vibe. But what exactly is a vibe? And what can it tell us about the emotional experiences that can evade and exceed objective and measurable descriptions of a place? One of the ways that I would describe vibes is a kind of embodied awareness, a space in which you're kind of paying attention to what's happening within the body. And that might sound very subjective, but I think from a sociological perspective, we might talk about collective effervescence. This is a term that is calling attention to what happens when we're all together in a space and are experiencing something similar. And if that thing is very good, then we might have a, a kind of collective effervescence. That's one way of talking about a vibe. So if you're in a football stadium and something really exciting is happening and maybe you are paying attention, but all of a sudden you pick it up, then you, you know everybody is experiencing this sense of excitement. That's part of what a vibe is. I really like the concepts of collective effervescence here because there's a there's a kind of universality to the vibe that one might be able to tap into, even if then, you know, we go on to maybe articulate it a little differently. We can all kind of tap into that thing. Art shows are really get big space in which Afropolitan projects take place. And some of the more kind of popular ones are Afrochella, which happens in December. There's a street art festival called Chaliwati. And Chaliwati is ga, um, it means Chali, let's go, and Chali is uh, like dude in Ghana. So those kinds of spaces, which bring again that diversity of people from all around the world to come and be fabulous and have fun together, show you what these Afropolitan projects can look like. But then they also are offering a kind of counter narrative, right, to what we think about African art or what we think about African music. And that's part of what's going on there too. And so the, the proliferation of activities like that kind of are part of why I use because they don't all look the same, but they have, you know, they have an underlying kind of motivating ethos, which is to counter 
a kind of dominant narrative. Enema talks about dominant narratives and how Afropolitan projects and the vibes that one experiences in a city can offer a counter-narrative. So what are some of the dominant narratives that are being challenged by people who participate in Afropolitan projects? And so the relationship with the West is one that I think is simultaneously, it's an, it's an ambivalent one. That, that's, what, that's how I would describe it. It's ambivalent in the sense that there's a, okay, we don't need the validation of the West, but we also want to show you that we can hang just like the West. But then there's also a, a current of it that is really about affecting an anti-colonial politic. And that also shows up in the popular one. So there's a kind of like reaching back into the gloried African past sort of thing, right? And there's a, you know what, we don't necessarily need to pretend that Africa's past is the past of kings and queens or something like that, but we can kind of recognize what the broad social context looked like, what kinds of inequalities were present there, uh, see how they may be transformed through the process of colonialism and what they look like now and what kind of world do we want to create. So what these narratives of Africa as a cosmopolitan space, of Accra as a, as a quote, world-class city, if you will, might be trying to do is to say, hey, you all have it absolutely wrong. There's something very modern happening here and you too can come and have your elite experience in this space. Some people are living a very elite experience on the African continent and are having a, an absolute ball. Looking at cities offers a glimpse into cosmopolitanism. Why might it be necessary to confront to consider cosmopolitanism in the context of studying Africa? Yet also, not everything happening in a city fits into the category of cosmopolitanism. So what might actually be obscured and erased if the only thing we see when studying African cities is the cosmopolitan element? Even as it's kind of saying, hey, we're going to articulate a particular kind of African future, that African future is limited in its imagination of who can belong as an African. There's a class politics. As I've said a few times, Afropolitan projects are enacted by class-privileged Africans. Sometimes when we overly focus on those narratives, what happens is that we ignore the fact that right now in Ghana, for example, there's apparently a yellow fever outbreak. Part of what's very scary about that is that it's December and people are going, you know, Accra has become the happening spot in December and all kinds of people go to Accra to have a good time. And it's like, hey, you, you got to get vaccinated if you're going to come because we didn't expect a yellow fever outbreak. And but if this happens, there's some very poor people who might not have access to health care. And that's also part of the reality of what happens in the city. And so if we're not kind of paying attention to that part of the story as well, the truth of the suffering, then what's the point? In the U.S. too, there are people living this elite experience and living very good lives, and there are people living in abject poverty. So it's not something that's exclusive to Africa, and I think that's part of what the Africa Rising narrative is trying to tell. Now that we've learned a bit more about African cities, the way young people experience and construct meaning in these places, 
And since we've gotten a glimpse of the vibes that one can tap into in Accra and elsewhere, let's think about what it could look like to integrate this into our teaching. Let's discuss our classrooms, our curriculum, and concentrate on bringing the study of cities to life for our students. Let's now learn from a teacher. My name is Katherine Manning. I teach the grade nine World History One course at Lexington High School. 12 years before that, I taught the World History Two course and AP World History. I traveled to Africa in 2010 as part of a Fulbright haze, specifically looking at the lived experience of Islam. So a lot of my observations from my own travels in Africa were related to the lived experience of Islam and looking at it as culturally embedded. What is it exactly that Catherine considers when teaching about Africa? Like if you leave off with decolonization and you're like, and everybody, you know, gained freedom from the European colonizers, then you're not looking at the changes that have taken place since. They're kind of stuck in the past, the stagnation, ways in which that decolonization is still happening on the continent. Too often, students' understanding of Africa is, again, this very stagnant thing. Like, Africa's stuck. It's backwards, right? It's, it's never evolved. Uh, they're not modernizing. I think that's dehumanizing. I think it's important for students to understand that Africa is a dynamic continent. Things are changing rapidly. I, I read recently Dar es Salaam is the second largest or fastest growing city in the world. I mean, that's not the city I knew in 2010. What are some potential themes that could be introduced in the context of exposing students to African cities within a social studies classroom? You can always choose Africa as a case study to represent historical trends or patterns. It doesn't need to be siloed. If your themes are like migration, for example, what motivates migration? Who's migrating? To where? What are the costs and benefits of that movement? It brings Africa into a conversation where it's not separate. It's part of these you know, larger global phenomenon. Gender, I think, is important. So where do we see women in the urban setting? I think something that struck us all is that at night, Cairo came alive and you see multi-generational families out together. What are the job opportunities for people in the family? What kind of jobs do people have in the urban setting? What are the expectations of different genders in the urban setting? And how might that be different than maybe in a rural setting? What kind of freedoms or lack of freedoms or what kind of exposure or opportunities do women and men have? What is happening in cities in the public sphere, what that we can see, and what's happening in people's own homes? We see the urban life on the streets, the businesses, what access to what kind of consumer goods do you have in the cities, but also what's happening privately. So we see people going about their daily lives, the traffic, you know, people hopping on their buses and going to their jobs. We saw McDonald's, but we also saw more traditional markets or self-owned businesses. That's what we're seeing publicly. But what's happening privately? Like, what does a home life look like? That's hard to 
to get to if you're not actually living there. But I do think it, it raises questions for students about what do they see when we show photographs of urban centers and then what's happening in people's daily lives in their home. The current events and the contemporary images and anecdotes of city life is really important. You know, thinking about urban life, like what do they notice about the city of Boston? You know, you have university students are such a presence in our city. We see that in Cairo, in coffee shops where people are (laughs) hanging out, talking. We went to Al-Azhar Park, which is this beautiful green space in Cairo, and we saw young couples walking through the park, their families having a picnic. I mean, kids can relate to that. The challenges of urbanization, urban spaces, overcrowding, gaps in, in wealth, right? Immigration, resources like water, for example, conversations about the environment. Those are things we're having in our own cities and here in the U.S. And I think we can apply those lenses to Africa as well. Let's hear from Catherine one more time and listen to her final thoughts on teaching about urban life in African cities. It's really hard to tease out when you're traveling anywhere in the world. What is culture? What is religion? What is unique to this climate, right? What is unique to this urban space? And so when we talk about Africa, which is a place where kids don't maybe not know a lot about, is that we can't just say that's city life, that it's so complicated and intertwined where do you live can be a really problematic question because it implies another question. Who are you? And even still within that, there's a certain exoticizing baked into the question itself. Studying cities and the experiences of young people in those spaces may be a logical response to that question. Yet we can teach in ways that upend the expectations of what it is that's found in Africa. With our students, we can focus on all that is hybridized, vibrant, and dynamic in Africa. We can call attention to social issues and social identities in ways that bring windows and mirrors into the classroom, at the same time that misconceptions and narrow definitions are avoided in our teaching. This work can transport students' minds to Accra or Harare or Nairobi, and it can make them members of a globally interconnected and ever-evolving humanity. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and our other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu Africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.